0: Listening to the podcast edition of One Love One Planet. My guest, I'm very pleased to welcome this morning, Sasha Snow. Good morning, Sasha. Uh,
1: Good morning, everyone.
0: Uh, It's lovely to have you on the show. Um, Sasha is a filmmaker whose film latest film, The Troublemaker, is on at The Cube tomorrow, so we are going to be talking to him about that. Could you just tell us how you came to be on that path of creating films uh, that that are so environmental?
1: I think it it probably happened quite subconsciously, it wasn't uh, an agenda I had, Um, I just, I think psychologically I'm predisposed to telling certain kinds of stories and as i 've progressed through my career i 've recognized a pattern between them, um, and in a way i 'm repeating the same story in different contexts um, and they usually involve i mean documentary as a as an art form is about empathy and putting your audience in the shoes of other people, um, so I look for people who are doing apparently. Uh, extreme or irrational or mad things and putting the audience in their shoes um, to try to make them see uh, where they're coming from and feel where they're coming from.
0: Which you do very powerfully. I mean I've seen two of your films now. Let's let's start by, let's start with the main one at hand, your latest work, The Troublemaker. Tell us what that's about.
1: Well, um, on the surface it's about to people's journey um, into climate activism, both, I guess, climate awareness and then doing something about it. Um, Underneath, it's about all of us, our collective response to what we intuitively know is happening, um, and that gap between becoming aware and becoming agents of change. And what that journey is like, and the kind of emotions and ideas that carry us along that that path.
0: And specifically, so it's it's about Roger Hallam.
1: Yeah. So yeah. So um, the the main character in it is a, a, a man called Roger Hallam who was uh, played an important part in the kind of strategic thinking that went into designing. Um, the protest movement that started off Extinction Rebellion. Um, he wasn't the only person by any means, um, but he happened to be the person that I met and became involved with. Um, and then, as a kind of balancing act to, to him, because he's quite an uh, interesting character, I wanted to find someone who was more like you and me, um, uh, and how his ideas play out. In, in the lives of an apparently ordinary citizen. Sylvia Dell is by, certainly not an, an ordinary person, by any means. Um, she's an exceptionally brave, courageous person. Um, but I wanted to make people see that there was a possibility to be like her in all of us. Um,
0: Which you certainly do. I mean, it's, re- it, it's really inspiring, really inspiring. Um, and you watch it unfold. Did you, did you have any sense at the beginning When you met Roger Hallam um, and then found Sylvia did you have any sense of how this was going to unfold what did you think it was going to be when you started out?
1: I didn't really start out wanting to make a film to be honest Um, I was just curious and I was curious about Roger I was curious about Extinction Rebellion as a as a social cultural phenomenon that had sort of come out of nowhere and on a whim, I got in touch with XR and thought, there's no way they're ever going to give me his number or his email. And of course, because they were very young and still quite naive, they did. And then, so then I wrote to him, there's no way he's ever going to write back, and he did. And then there's no way he's ever actually going to meet me, and of course he did. And once I met him, then one thing led to another. Um, I thought, this guy, there's something about him where his conversation will veer from the extreme to... Mm-hmm. The truth in from one sentence to the next, um, and you know when you hear something that's emotionally true, you feel like you've had the thought yourself, um, and it really started from there. Really,
0: I think what's particularly kind of powerful coming from it is it was was the if I can talk about the opening sequence with him, you know, talking about his farm and the crop failing. I think that's it's that starting point, and so often it seems to come down to food. Um, and that's, you know, it's a theme I've seen elsewhere. It's just it, it's so utterly basic um, and very very powerful. Um, so were you, were you? Uh, I, I wasn't always sure. I thought I, th- most of it looked like your footage, beautifully, beautifully shot. I mean, it's it, it's that sense of place I just absolutely love. Um, were you in London for the for the rebellion? Yes. Yeah. yeah we, and we... how? What was
1: that like filming that? So the the film spans sort of March two thousand nineteen till October two thousand and nineteen, so that year. Um, so the first two big um, XR rebellions, not the first one, which was smaller of the Five Bridges in November the previous <laughs> yeah. year. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've been to a lot of climate demonstrations, not as a filmmaker, just as a, as a protester in, in the past, for probably 10 years before that. Um, I remember taking my son when he was about six to a protest outside St. Paul's. And we came out of a St. Paul's tube station and there were like 60 people there. And I, you know, I big this thing up to my son saying, Sam, we're going to go on a protest. And it's just really demoralizing. Um, And so I turned up in April with my camera and a very small crew. And um, it was an incredible, transformative experience to be on the streets in that environment with those people. Um, And I think people looked around and thought, wow, where did everyone come from? Yeah, Um, and
0: it was a beautiful day. That first Monday was absolutely glorious sunshine. Because because um, we worked at, we were both there we must have probably both been in exactly the same place I imagine and I remember walking down Oxford Street from Marble Arch, no cars, sunshine, people just walking around, and you could hear the birds and there was this incredible sense of hope mm-hmm. and also just the sheer sort of audaciousness of putting that pink boat in the middle of Oxford Circus was and it's Bristol as well which I loved I thought it was so fantastic I couldn't believe it I just stood there kind of looking down Regent Street and all those flags and thought this is absolutely extraordinary it was an amazing moment it will be I, I assume a sort of an iconic moment
1: yeah, and I think in in general, it give it, it's a window into another way of being and another possibility for how you organise society, of people doing things together and what strangers can achieve if they act together, and which I think for me is a bit of a paradox because I'm I'm quite a, a loner as a as a person for one reason or another, and so I've become much more aware of how cut off as a society we've become from each other and how cut off we've become from our life support systems and other life on earth
0: you're right and actually yes Um, you've just made me think of something really weird well it's not weird it's a little bit random Um, I went to see a folk singer on Sunday evening called John Wilkes Um, and he's he's basically perpetuating all the a lot of songs folk songs from Birmingham apparently loads and loads of folk songs came out of Birmingham um, in the 19th century and so and he was playing all these old traditional songs and talking about them and he plays the guitar absolutely beautifully and tells these stories in song and as he was saying the star is not the person who's singing the star in folk songs is always the song and, and I'm just a carrier um, and as I was listening to this thing I thought this is so weird these songs are like... <laughs> the sort of fungal mycelium of trees for humans they are this web that binds us and we've we've sort of lost that in so many ways but there's something about folk music that keeps us together that connects us (laughs) and it's a constant theme that comes back back in this show Mm. um and that's this was what was so wonderful about... What I, what I love is the way you, you, you look at these individuals. You're not telling, like, as it were, the big story with lots of statistics and facts. You're doing it through individuals who are working together, who come together. They're sort of independently, but they're all moved by the same sort of goal. Um, and so people like Sylvia, she, it's fascinating to see her story... Um, did, did you see much change in her? I mean, when did you first meet her? When no, did I, first...
1: I, I met her halfway through the filming process, and um, it, originally, my my goal w- was to keep things simple because I was running it off my own money at that point, and so I was just going to focus on Roger. Um, but I quickly, when I saw I saw Sylvia speaking on Sky News, and I thought oh, this woman's amazing, and um, I just went, I just rang her up and said, can I come and visit you? And that afternoon I went down to Exeter and set up a camera in our kitchen and, and we talked. Um, and her story f- fits and mirrors uh, Rogers very nicely. Um, I actually wanted a third person, but never had the time. I just ran out of time to find them. And the narrative of, of the events of, of, that were going on in London that year sort of played out and I was too late but I needed, I, I was looking for a younger voice.
0: Um, right. Okay. Yeah. It's, well, it's tough, isn't it? It's the constraints of these things. I mean, it's, it is a fantastic film anyway. Um, and, and yeah, particularly people like Sylvia, um, cause as she says, you know, she's an ordinary woman, a mum, um, older, lots of old people in this movement, aren't there? I suppose, you know, we've got time. Um,
1: I think it's no no surprise that that a very kind of powerful force within uh, the the climate movement within xr are women in their fifties and sixties um who have family but are not directly responsible for them anymore they have often have strong community networks with each other, and so if they decide to do something, they do it together <laughs> that, they're forced to be right yeah, no, absolutely uh, well,
0: I think you know in terms of troublemakers. Because this was the other thing, I was thinking, you know, I love this idea of the Troublemaker. Actually, yeah, no. can you just tell me, why did you call it the Troublemaker? It's just, I mean...
1: Well, it was either going to be the Troublemaker or the Troublemakers. Right. And okay. uh, because of our natural desire to want to follow stories with a main protagonist... Um, I thought it was more likely that people will watch a film called The Troublemaker, because you want to know who's causing the trouble. Um, so really, from a marketing point of view, that was the main reason. Um, but it, with with hindsight, it does it make people think that the film's about Roger Hallam, when in fact the film's about us. Yeah,
0: and also I didn't think that. I kind of felt, OK, now we're talking to Sylvia. She's The Troublemaker now. Um, so I didn't, Yeah, I didn't really have that impression. Um, And in the
1: course of the film you see hundreds if not thousands of troublemakers and they're all very different from different walks of life, different ages Um, and I think that was another remarkable thing about that year was to see the the variety of age um, on the streets and the combination of the young and the old um, which I think the powers that be are are immensely frightened of Mm -hmm. um, because if you get those two groups of people yeah. acting together um, it could be incredibly it's powerful, very powerful.
0: Yeah. yeah i mean i you know i feel like we've had i've had a well at least one big troublemaker diana warner who was you know oh, yes. she's yeah she's she's made all sorts of trouble i like that idea of good trouble john Lewis's yeah. idea of good trouble and i just think we have so many in bristol as well we've got so many troublemakers in bristol
1: well it's the it's the sacrifice it's just... of christ and you know western christianity mm-hmm. is at the heart of a lot of uh, our moral code about what is right and wrong we've just either forgotten it or ignore it um mm. and i think that sacrifice is coming back
0: yeah and this is something i i mm. i try to sort of say to people when they're getting very very angry about people from insulate britain i i think what they don't necessarily think about is Exactly, precisely, what sacrifice those people are actually making. It's like nobody wants to sit in a row. No. Nobody wants to go to prison. Nobody wants to be hated and spat on and kicked. Why on earth would you choose to do that?
1: Well, was it a coincidence that one of your news pieces was about the this, the architectural body um, asking oh, the government yes. to insulate <laughs> yeah. their houses? Yeah. So exactly. there's no accident. There. No, exactly.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, you know, it's about shifting mm. the norms of society. Um, Absolutely. And you're going to make some people very angry because people like their convenience of of their lives and they don't want that disrupted. We're all like that when it comes down to it.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Right, before... I'm going to play a piece of music in a minute that really, I think, links to this. But first, I did just want to talk about your other two films that, as you say, have sort of accidentally formed part of a trilogy. And I watched one of them yesterday and thought it was just so... Well, it starts off feeling like a, a bit like a thriller and a bit like Jaws, I have to say. It's, it's that sense of this unseen sort of presence. Conflict Tiger, um, which it's this story that unfolds. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, well, uh, uh, as a filmmaker working in a commercial world, um, I often have ideas for things I'd like to make, but they're completely unfundable and no commissioning editor would go near them. So in a way, you're having to deliver the story or the idea that you're trying to get across through some other vehicle that's more attractive to them Um, not in an act of deceit but where both parties uh, have something to get out of it. Um, So I I wanted to make a film about the biggest black market in the world which was um, between on the border of Russia and China and I got in touch with the Danish Film Institute who helped fund my previous film and they said the film was already being made and so I sort of more or less gave it up and then by chance I bumped into someone working for the World Wildlife Fund on the street who was campaigning for funding and I stopped and had a chat and they said have you heard about the work we're doing with the Siberian tiger I didn't even know there was such a thing as a Siberian tiger at that that stage and so I started to research that subject um, and I came across this incredible story of a particular case of a man-eating tiger where the tiger demonstrated a vengeful behaviour where it targeted a particular person, um, and I thought, well, if that's not going to be a vehicle for talking about what's happened to Russia since the collapse of communism, I don't know what is, um, because everyone loves a tiger story. Um.
0: Yeah, and it's it is it it's it's beautiful and it is gripping. It's heartbreaking. It's yes. It's so many things. I would urge you to urge you to watch all of these. Um, and what's what is the, the your other film? Hadwin's Judgment. Can you tell us so, a bit about
1: that. So um, off the back of Conflict Tiger, um, I was approached by an American author called John Valant, um who lives in in Vancouver, and he'd seen Conflict Tiger um, uh, at a festival in Canada, and he said, "Would you mind if I wrote a?" A non fiction book on your story. And I, I was flattered and said, Of course. And I gave him my contacts and my research notes. And almost as a, as a um, side, he said, You should read the book that I've just finished because there are some uncanny similarities um, between the two stories. And the book that he'd finished was called The Golden Spruce, which was um, about this uh, character called Grant Hadwin, who was a logger by trade. and. He'd been a professional logger for coming up to 30 years, and his job was to both find and then figure out how to remove the biggest and oldest and most valuable trees in British Columbia. And so he was a timber cruiser, so timber cruisers find the wood, and he was also a road layout engineer, so he was would tell the engineers how to lay down the roads in a way that was going to be... Um, Most so the road would have a long life and wouldn't collapse on them. And so he was in a unique position at the kind of cutting edge of extraction and he witnessed the consequences of the work that he was doing over 25 years. And he tried to change the system from the inside. He made uh, repeated calls to his managers and suggested partial cutting or leaving certain stands but was ignored. And eventually the inner torment Torment of the contradiction between what he knew and what he did, which is in a way a situation that we're all in now, um, pushed him to extremes, and he he thought, well, what can one person do? And he decided to cut down one of North America's most sacred trees um, as a way of waking people up, which was the golden spruce, um, which was a genetic freak of nature. Um, that stood on the islands of Haida Gwaii, which are like the Canadian Galapagos. Um, It was revered by the local Haida people, and it was the centre of their kind of religious culture. It was a kind of icon um, and a living being for them. It was like the little prince for the kind of our culture. Um, So when he cut it down, he unwittingly... um, It was a desecration of their culture. And perversely, the Hyder were quite closely aligned with his worldview. So it was a tragedy in a way. Mm. Um, yeah. and that story has become part of Canadian mythology. It's, it's a very well-known story.
0: Mm. Well, I can't wait to see it. I'm going to watch it this week. Um, right. Okay. We are, gosh, time is moving on. Um, Sasha. So how can we watch your films? The, the, we, the Troublemaker is on the cube tomorrow. How else can people watch it?
1: Uh, the troublemaker is on l- lots of different digital platforms um it's on amazon and itunes and vimeo it's um, free
0: on amazon uh, isn't
1: it uh, it's think. not if you've got prime it's free right. um it's also free on a network called Waterbear, which is a kind of environment uh, environmental um uh, platform uh, for streaming and video on demand i think all you need to do is sign up it doesn't i don't think it costs anything no. um so it's quite easy to see if you want to see it mm.
0: Great. And what about Conflict Tiger and Herman's? Conflict
1: Judgement? Tiger and Herman's Judge are both available on Vimeo to stream and download. Yeah,
0: great, great stuff. Um, well, yes, as I say, I would urge you to watch these films. They are, yeah, they are really quite something. Um, Sasha, thank you so much. My
1: pleasure.